Good morning, Lydia House. Happy Advent. This is the first Sunday in Advent. We have four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas. Advent means coming. And so we're thinking about the first coming of Jesus, our Savior, how he came humbly through Mary in a manger, and we think ahead to his second coming. I love this season of the year. I love, I smell it. I feel it. I taste it. And so uh, we want to do all those things. We want our emotions to be alive and our senses to be alive in this season as we consider this great event of God. Imagine this, taking on flesh and becoming a human being. I've already started reading the accounts with Phil and Margaret, and we are stunned as we read these wonderful stories of how God came to us through uh, the same way we came into the world. And so we have our Advent candle here, and we light one each week, and then we light the Christmas candle at the end. And so I'm going to light this candle, and then we're going to pray together. Oh, I'm sorry. That was that was not a good blowing out of the match. Father, we marvel that you in order to save humankind would take on human flesh through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incarnation, the incarnate, in flesh, God, Jesus Christ, who is at your right hand now, who went through suffering, pain, death in order to rescue us. And we pray that in this season, we would again be uh, turned to this mighty event in fullness of praise and thanksgiving for who you are and what you have done in sending us the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So Lydia House, have a blessed season. And uh, today we, we get to see you by Zoom. Thank God for Zoom. We can see each other when we can't all be together, but hopefully we'll be together soon. Amen. Amen. Just a couple quick announcements from me. Um, let us know how we can serve you during this time when we're not seeing each other in person as much. Give me a call, text, whatever uh, works for you. Let me know what's going on. One way we can uh, get together a little more is Wednesdays. We're having a communion and Zoom fellowship time. So every Wednesday at 7 p.m. And those details are in the um, update email and we'll make sure they're on the website as well and ties and offerings you can do on the website too via paypal uh and that's pretty much it as far as announcements a couple of things regarding zoom um when you are not talking and interacting and we're going to be interacting and stuff during the message we're going to walk through some bible passages when you're not talking you might want to click the little mute icon there's a microphone kind of on the bottom of the screen. And if you click it, then and you can't hear. 
yourself. And no one else can hear you either. And uh, if you have a house full of smaller people, sometimes that's helpful uh, because it's not quite as noisy. But before you talk, make sure you click that again so that your mic is unmuted. Also, um, just for your information, this is being recorded and put on YouTube and stuff like we normally do for our services so that people can watch after the fact, or if they can't get into Zoom, they can at least watch the service. So be aware that it is being recorded. Um, if that is something you don't want, you can turn off your camera so that nobody can see you if you don't want to be recorded. Or if you're not sure if what you say could be held against you in a court of law, you, you might not want to uh, say it into a mic and have it recorded. So, and now we normally record our services, so it's not that much of a change, but I don't know. Some people might not want to see themselves on the internet for some reason. Um, well, the Christmas candle is going to be a white candle that we're going to put in the middle. Yeah, we'll find a good white one to put in the middle. They're asking questions about the advent wreath. We'll talk more about that next week. How's that? So we are ready to, whoa, careful. I have, now I have reindeer hair all over me. This is a reindeer pelt behind me, by the way. I got it in Finland. Um, and some people consider it morbid to have a reindeer pelt to celebrate Christmas. I don't think so. I think that seems festive to me. Um, and now I have hair all over me. So we're going to get into worship now. Let's pray. And let's try to focus our hearts on the Lord. This is a good time to mute yourself, by the way. And you won't be able to hear other people singing other than Blake and Steph during worship. Because if we all try to sing at the same time on Zoom due to internet lag, it sounds like well, it sounds pretty crazy. Um, so it'll just be them uh, during the worship time. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this season where we remember that you sent your son to us in order to suffer and die for us so that we could be a part of your family forever. And we pray that you would allow us to, yes, enjoy the season and enjoy all the wonderful memories and things that it brings to us, but also help us to be mindful of what this time meant, what it meant for you, what it means for us. And for those of us who maybe have lost loved ones or have some difficult memories during this season of the year, we pray that you would be with those folks, that you would comfort them. Um, and as the, as the carol says, that you would bring them comfort and joy during this season as well. Let's take a moment now just to confess to the Lord, anything that we may have done that we shouldn't have, or that we haven't done that we should have. Let's take a moment silently to confess our sins before the Lord. And Lord, we receive your forgiveness for all of our sins, and we thank you for that. We thank you for everything that you do for us. We thank you for providing for us. We thank you for the joy and beauty of this season. We thank you that we are together in one way or another right now. We thank you for technology. We thank you for health, and we pray for health for everyone who is a part of this church, Lord. We pray that you would give uh, guide us and protect us during these unusual days. And we thank you that we live in a country where 
these kind of things are possible and medicine is possible. And we pray for those who aren't as fortunate. We pray for Pastor Dowson and everyone he knows in Uganda. We pray that you would bring them enough rain for crops to grow and for them to have enough food. Pray that you would protect them and keep them safe as well. We pray for the Japanese student ministry. It's difficult for them to get together now as well. And they're feeling very, very lonely being so far from home. And so we pray that you would bless them, bless that ministry, help them to be able to reach out to people and to bring comfort to people who are lonely and missing their families back home. Pray for Masumi and her family um, and the others who, who are part of Japanese Student Connection to help them, those students, to feel connected and to be able to hear the gospel. And we pray that those hearts would be open to receive you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship, and I'm going to mute my mic, and I recommend you do the same. We'll see evermore, evermore. He shall reign forevermore. Humble King, Sovereign Lord, He shall reign forevermore. Of oh, that birth forever blessed. When the chosen virgin go By the Holy Ghost conceiving For the Savior of our world Evermore, evermore He shall reign forevermore Humble King, Sovereign Lord he shall reign forevermore, evermore, evermore. He shall reign forevermore, humble King, sovereign Lord. He shall reign forevermore. He is found in human fashion death and sorrow here to know that the race of adam's children doomed by law to endless woe might not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below but forever rest in beauty in the light of heaven's glow evermore evermore he shall reign forevermore, humble King, Sovereign Lord. He shall.
shall reign forevermore, evermore, evermore. He shall reign forevermore, humble King, sovereign Lord. He shall reign forevermore. starlight in the dark endless smiles can't conceal you every glimmer is a spark catching fire as you break through oh you're not far away you're coming close Oh Even as I wait You're coming close You're like summer in the night goes down but still I feel you three shadows turning bright every broken heart is made new you're not far away you're coming close Even as I wait, you're coming close. There's no space between you and I, you and I. You are closer than very oxygen. I'm breathing in, I breathe you in. You are God with us, you are here with us, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, you are infinite, your glory has no end, Jesus, Jesus. 
there's no heart unseen there's no space between you and i you and i you are closer than the very oxygen i'm breathing in breathe you in you are god with us you are here with us Emmanuel, Emmanuel, you are infinite, your glory has no end, Jesus, Jesus, there's no heart unseen, there's no space between you and I, you and I, you are closer than the very oxygen I'm breathing in, I breathe you in. You are God with us, you are here with us, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, you are infinite. Your glory has no end, Jesus, Jesus. smiles can conceal you every glimmer is a spark catching fire as you break Haste to bring him life. 
the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, peasant king, to own him. The king of kings, salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ, the king whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. This, this is Christ, the king whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Oh, come adore our King, glory in the highest, glory in the highest. Let all creation sing, glory in the highest, glory in the highest. Oh, come adore our King, glory in the highest, glory in the highest. Let all creation sing, glory in the highest, glory in the highest. Oh, come adore our King, glory in the highest, Glory in the highest. Let all creation sing. Glory in the highest. Glory in the stars are brightly shining it is the night of our dear Savior's birth long lay the world 
sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees oh hear the angel voices oh night divine Christ was born, O night divine, O night, O night divine, truly he taught us to love one another his law is love and his gospel is peace chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy, in grateful chorus raise we, let all within us praise his holy name. Christ His name forever, His power and glory evermore proclaim His power and glory.
So you may remember I taught on the Second Great Awakening a few weeks ago. Well, that song was written during the Second Great Awakening. And you notice the, the lines in there about slavery and breaking chains and all oppression shall cease and the slave is our brother. That was all written during the Second Great Awakening. Um, they put that in a Christmas carol. That's how important that was to them at that time. Which I think is pretty awesome. Does anybody have a word from the Lord that they would like to share? I might. <laughs> I was reading today's reading in Daniel, and I never came across this. I mean, I probably read it, but in this particular Bible I'm reading, it's a, I guess you can't see that. It's a, um, it's a reader's Bible, so it's just written like a book. There's no verse markings or numbering or whatever. And I like this because it, it helps me just read and, and, and um, try to grasp, comprehend what's, what's being said. But Daniel in chapter one, is, or yeah, chapter one, sorry, chapter two, has just, God just downloaded him, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation. It was a big deal. A lot of people were going to die over this thing. And um, Daniel went to his colleagues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their Babylonian names. And said, guys, we need to pray and ask God to help us. And then he, he was given the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then he has, there's this little poem or prayer or song. I don't know what it is, but he worshiped. Um, he worshiped by saying, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have wis you have given me wisdom and might. And I, you know, that's such a powerful reminder for us, especially in this time and all that's going on. Um, I just thought, wow, that's a prayer I could get behind. That's <laughs> it. I don't know what verse it's in because in this Bible there are no verse markings, but it's about. It's about halfway through. Oh, okay. It's verse 20. Yeah. 19, 19 through 22. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good, Tim, especially like you said during these times, you know, when things uh, aren't going maybe the way one would want them to, it's important for one to remember that God is in charge. <laughs> he is in control. He has already seen everything happen. He is not surprised, and 
That's very comforting. And he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he knows the future. So I, he, he's the one to, to hook your reins to. You know, he, he knows where he's going. And that's, that's comforting to me during these, these kind of times when I don't necessarily know where the country's going or, or what's going to happen, you know? I have a story. I like stories. I think... By the way, ohayou gozaimasu. Asumi, John, good to see you guys. Maybe Is Rod back there too? Hi, Rod, if you're back there. Oh, we can't see everybody, huh? I... I, uh, I have... I, I'll tell the story. Yeah. Uh, this time, 10 years ago, November, a group of us were sitting in the living room and we were talking about the house church that we wanted to plant and we didn't have a name yet. And I had a name up my sleeve and I can't even remember what it was. And I said, or since we're on Lydia and a house church was started after Paul connected with Lydia and he was invited to her house and they started a house church, I said, we could also call it Lydia House Church. Everybody, without exception, jumped on that. <laughs> I, I had another idea. They jumped on that and they said, oh, for sure we want. So, so they won and uh, that was the beginning of Lydia House Church, uh, November, 10, uh, one decade ago. And the reason I'm sharing this is that, as you know, Nate, on Tuesday night, I am meeting either by Zoom or uh, probably by Zoom but, uh, or in the basement with seven young adults who were a part of a young adult group that we had here years ago called Communitas. You probably heard me say that crazy name before. And the reason I'm meeting with them is that they are open to the idea of putting Lydia houses all over the city. And so I would like you, Nate, or somebody to pray for that meeting because uh, Lydia House has been a real gift to our family this last uh, decade. And uh, it's time that other people know about the joy of meeting together in groups of 10, 20, 30 in a home and experiencing that uh, together. So if somebody wants to pray for that, it'll be uh, Tuesday night. I'm going to go into teacher mood mode right now and tap Tim Duick to pray for that for us. Teacher mode, huh? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, well, we actually prayed similarly for that uh, during the men's Zoom this morning. So, Lord, we just thank you for that vision yes. that you've downloaded to these men. And Lord, we ask you for wisdom. We ask you for, for the, the understanding of what that plan all involves. We thank you, Lord, for, for, <clears throat> um, for the men 
We just pray, Lord, that um, gifts would be made clear. We thank you, Lord, that this is not a really a new plan, that from the very beginning, uh, these the, the, the story of Christendom is the story of these fires being lit all around in neighborhoods and homes and communities yeah. in every part of the of the uh, of the land of Palestine and and the Holy Land and then from there it went to the the Greek speaking peoples and to the to the Roman Latin people speaking peoples and it just spread worldwide Lord and we just thank you for this if this is a small part of what you're doing in the country we just thank you Lord and we just put um, ask you Lord to to give Paul and Nate and these men wisdom and discernment in putting one foot in front of the other, Lord. Um, we just pray that the logistics would be worked out, that the training would be worked out, that the that the support and the and the technology needed would be worked out. We pray, Lord, that your word more than anything, Lord, that your word would descend, and your spirit would would descend, and we'd be poured out on the communities involved here, Lord, whether it's in the immediate area or whether it's in a prison or whether it's in a house church uh, or whether it's just in people's homes. We just thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. We pray, Lord, your anointing and your outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this effort. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And women will be a part of it too. Some of the wives are just as eager as the guys. So I was just going to comment on that because you had mentioned men and obviously we're good with women being part of this too. Lydia was a woman after all. There actually is at least one, there's at least one uh, female that we are exploring um, how to do a house church in her unique setting uh, right now. So please be in prayer about that folks. Um, we'd appreciate that. And yeah, the, uh, we'll talk more about house church here and there as we, as we go on with Lydia House, but this has been a part of our vision since the beginning. And it feels like God is sort of releasing us, if that makes sense. We've been praying about, since I, since I came on at Lydia House a little over, well, three and a half years ago now, um, I've been praying, come on, when, when do we get to go? When do we get to go? Um, feel a little bit like, this maybe makes me sound too cool, but a horse that's stuck in the stall on its way to like a race and it's trying to get somewhere, but the gate is closed. And I feel kind of like God is opening the gate or at least starting to, or the countdown is in or something. Choose your metaphor, but <laughs> it feels like, it feels like God is giving us a release to, to start exploring this and get, get to it. So I'm excited and we'll give you some house church news at some point, but uh, house churches are really taking over and thriving in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, in India, there are literally hundreds of thousands of house churches now. Uh, there's a lot of places where, where these are really flourishing. And I think, I think America could be one of those places. What do you think, Andrew? Yay. Andrew thinks yay. Good. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Andrew thinks yay. So that's good. All right. Um, please grab a Bible. You will need a Bible. Um, if you want to grab one open up to the gospel of luke we are going to do sort of bible study format this week and next week i don't know how far we'll get this week we'll see how far we get and then we'll just continue next sunday 
and we're just going to sort of walk through primarily the gospel of Luke, the birth narrative story. Um, this is something we're all familiar with, but I really like to go slowly and in depth in stuff we're familiar with, because there might be a lot of stuff here that you're not used to seeing that you might catch that you maybe didn't catch before. And so gospel of Luke and uh, when I was at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, I took a whole class in Greek on the birth narratives in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we spent a full week of class time on the first four verses of Luke uh, because it's so dense and deep and there's so much stuff in there. So I'm going to condense that week into three minutes uh, for an intro for you here. But open up to Luke chapter one, verse one. Now, real quick, books in the ancient Near East in the first century didn't have titles the way we have titles today on books. Today, we almost always will pick a special title for a book and that's what's on front and that's how people refer to the book. In the first century, they were still doing it kind of the ancient way, which was the title of a book is simply the first sentence of the book. So whatever the first sentence of a book is, that's the title. And so the first sentence of the Gospel of Luke is verses one through four. That's all one sentence. And so this whole giant paragraph is the title of the book. Very long title, right? And the grammar and the style and everything is exquisite. Uh, it, it's much harder to read the Gospel of Luke in Greek than it is, say, Matthew or Mark, uh, because it's, it's just more educated. It's more uh, it's more stylized, which makes it a little more difficult. He uses bigger words. And so I want to read through this intro because it gives us a great context of who Luke is, what, what he's writing about, why he's writing it, and that'll inform the rest of things as we, as we look through. So everybody with me? Yay? Okay. Feel free to unmute and, and talk at any point if you want to. Okay. So... Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus, which is a Greek name. So he was a, a Roman VIP of some sort. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but that's who Luke is writing to. Verse one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he uses the word there, narrative. So Luke is trying to write a narrative and he's saying others have tried to do this, but I want to try to do it uh, differently than they have. He's not saying better, but he's saying differently. And what is a narrative? A narrative is a story. Typically, when you tell a story, if you're a decent storyteller, you're going to start at the beginning of the story and you're going to tell everything pretty much in order. And then you're going to get to the conclusion or the point of the story eventually. And Luke is saying, that's what I am going to try to do. I'm going to try to give a, the story of the things that have been accomplished among us. Once upon a time, Exactly. Once upon a time. Luke is saying, I am about to do a once upon a time. So pay attention. And the, the word there, narrative, it's, it's not just, I'm going to tell stories here and there about this guy I knew. It's, I'm going to tell the story from beginning to end. So there's sort of a chronology implied here. And verse two, just as those who were from the beginning, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered it to us. So this is very interesting. Luke is saying he is not an eyewitness of these things. He was not there. He didn't see it himself. And that's strange because the other gospels are all uh, autobiographical or biographical of people who were there. 
Matthew and John were there, right? They were part of the group. They were part of the original disciples. The Gospel of Mark is the biography of Peter that Mark wrote down while he was in prison uh, with Peter in Rome. And Luke was not. He was not one of those guys. So it's interesting, not only that he writes a gospel, but that his gospel gained credibility. Um, and we can talk at some point about why that is. But he's saying, so there were people who were eyewitnesses from the beginning. And I have researched this and I have taken what they have said and what they have delivered to us to write this gospel. The word there, eyewitnesses, this is the only time that's used in the whole New Testament. And, but it's used commonly in ancient histories. So people of the time who were writing a history text, they use this word. This means eyewitnesses, literally in the sense of people who saw it, but it also means in the sense of like good source testimony. If I want to find out exactly what has happened, these are the kind of things I'm going to look for. So Luke, again, he is writing a history. It's going to be accurate. It's going to be legal. It's going to be measurable. It's going to be provable. That's what he's setting out to do, which is different than, let's say, Matthew. Matthew wasn't trying to write a history. Matthew was trying to prove that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew is writing to Jews to prove Jesus was the Messiah. So there's tons of quotes from the Old Testament. He, he fulfilled this prophecy in this way. He fulfilled this prophecy in that way. That's what Matthew's trying to do. He's not as concerned about exact chronology. He's concerned about trying to convince people that that's true. Everything Matthew wrote was correct, but Luke is saying, what I'm trying to do is a little different. I'm trying to write a story from beginning to end that is accurate and chronological and really precise. And so that's Luke's aim here. And that word eyewitnesses uh, really proves that. And he goes on, it seemed to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account. There again, that, that phrase, orderly account. He is trying to write something that this is the way it actually happened. I know for a fact, I have done all the research, I've talked to all the people and they all agree this is how it happened. And so, and he says he has followed all things closely for some time past. So as soon as he became a Christian and Luke was one of those, second generation disciples. And so he may have become a, a follower right away at Pentecost or sometime shortly thereafter, because he's been, he's been walking with the Lord for a while. And he was also in the apostolic company of Paul. Um, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so if you read the book of Acts, you'll see a lot of they, and they did this, they did that, they did that. And then at some point it switches to we, and we went here and we did this and we were amazed and we saw this. And then it goes back to they. And then they did this and they did that. And then it goes back to we. And then we did this and we did that. And that's because Luke was part of Paul's apostolic team. And sometimes he was on those trips himself. And that's when it switches to we in Acts. And then the other ones are he's getting the information from the eyewitnesses, uh, like he does in Luke. So, and I think being part of the apostolic company of Paul is part of what gave Luke credibility. That people were like, look, you weren't there, but... We all know you, everybody vouches for you. You were part of the apostolic team of Paul. And let's face it, your gospel is really good and really awesome. So I think that's why uh, it caught on in a sort of surprising way because he wasn't one of those original eyewitnesses. Okay, so he's trying to write an orderly account. Again, he's hitting this over and over again. He's trying to write a history, an accurate history. An orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he's writing to a specific person, but he knows that he's, all, all histories back then were written for specific people because somebody had to pay for it. 
Okay. So somebody, the emperor pays Josephus to go out and do research and write a book, or somebody pays somebody to go out and do research and write a book. So Luke is doing this for Theophilus, but he knows it's, it's for everybody. And then verse four, again, he, he states why he's doing this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing all of this in, a, in an exact way so that he can have certainty to know exactly what happened. What is the whole Jesus story about? And Luke wants him to have certainty. This is exactly what happened. For sure, this is how it happened. And that's why Luke is writing. And then he says, the things you have been taught. So Theophilus has already been taught about Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. We don't know if he's a believer or not yet, but Luke is writing this to help build his faith so that he can have certainty because he probably heard this rumor and that rumor. I, I heard Jesus was an illegitimate child. It seems unlikely that that person would be a Messiah. You know, whatever, whatever he had heard, Luke is like, nope, this is the actual story. I want you to be certain and have, uh, have your faith kind of built up in that way. And of course, we're very thankful for Theophilus, because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have the Gospel of Luke, or probably Acts, and both of them are awesome. So any, any uh, questions there? That was just a quick background of the book of Luke and what he is going after uh, Western people, Western taught people like myself, tend to gravitate towards the Gospel of Luke over Sam Matthew or Mark sometimes, because it is written in a more Western mindset. Uh, versus Matthew and Mark, which are more of an Eastern mindset. They're not as concerned about, well, when did this miracle happen versus this miracle versus this parable in terms of time, because it doesn't matter to them. For Luke, it matters very much when things happen and, and it, it's more orderly. So those of us who are more Westernly minded or trained find it easier to follow what it is that happened. Kaylee has a question. Kaylee. Is the introduction like, is he telling us what he's going to be telling us about? Right. He's telling us, I'm going to tell you all the things that happened regarding Jesus and so that you can be certain of exactly what happened. I talked to the eyewitnesses. And so he talked to all the disciples regularly and he talked to Mary. These first three chapters of Luke, roughly, are basically the authorized biography of Mary. Because as you look at these chapters, this is all about Mary. So he, and Mary was a very important part of the early church, hugely important part of the early church. And Luke interviewed her over and over and over and over and over again to get all the details down. And that's why Luke knows things like, and Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Well, how would Luke know what Mary was thinking? How would he know what things Mary had been pondering in her heart? Well, he knew that because Mary told him. He knew that because he asked. If you don't know, ask. That's, that's good. Um, and so these first three chapters are really the, the biography of Mary which I find awesome because Mary's one of my heroes. Any other thoughts, questions? I have a thought. You Should could have, have heard that intro in a graduate school and Nate is giving it to you and you can take it as a compliment because he is, uh, he is giving you a very good intro into Luke. So thank you, Nate, for that background. Well, you're very welcome. I know everybody here is, is pretty well versed in scripture and you kind of know the background. So sometimes I go a little more in depth because I know you can handle it. Uh, flip forward a little bit. Uh, I'm not skipping the whole Jesus story, but I just want to talk about one other thing first. Flip to Luke 3. Luke 3, starting with verse 23, we see the genealogy. And I want to look at the genealogy 
in Luke and the one in Matthew real quick and compare these two. Um, genealogies for ancient people were very important and for Jews, they were exceptionally important because, <clears throat> excuse me, for Jews, ancestry and lineage is part of how they experienced God. It's part of their faith because they were what? Children of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, the God, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather, the, the God of our fathers. All, all, all of these phrases were very, very important to them. So, so for them, where your heritage came through, which of the 12 tribes are you descended from? All these things are vastly important to Jews. And so we see a genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke, and we see another one in Matthew. Um, with Luke, uh, it starts here, Luke 3.23. Where Jesus, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to give you highlights. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So he's about 30 years old now. Being the son, as was supposed, and Luke's already told us about that uh, at this point, because that's in chapter one. Uh, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Metat, et cetera, et cetera. And then he keeps going down and... Luke, Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and he goes in reverse chronology all the way to Adam. So he traces it from Jesus all the way to Adam. In the middle, uh, verse 31, you run into some folks that we know. Um, at the end of verse 31, we see... Uh, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So that's King David. Okay. So Luke is tra trans is uh, following, tracing Jesus's genealogy all the way to King David, specifically through King David's son, Nathan. And then he goes back in time um, all the way to Adam, the son of God. It says son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Now, when, when uh, Jews say son of, they don't necessarily mean literal physical offspring of. They sometimes mean the ancestor of. And so like Andrew is son of Nathaniel, son of Steve, son of Richard. Those are literal people who literally had those children. But sometimes for the Jews, it was more like, and he was the ancestor of this guy who you know. Um, sometimes they would skip generations if people were naughty. Or if they didn't think they deserved to be in the genealogy, they would skip them. Um, and sometimes we're talking not about physical offspring as much as legal offspring, adopted children, and that sort of thing as well. Might have actually not been the father of, it might have been the uncle of, or something like that. So that was fairly common. But here, he goes from Jesus all the way to Adam, who he calls son of God. Now, keep your finger in that, flip to Matthew. And you'll note that Matthew does not wait until chapter 3 to get at his genealogy. Matthew starts in verse one of the book. And so remember what we said about the first verse of a book? The first uh, sentence. sentence of the book is the title of the book, right? So this is the title of Matthew's gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's the title of Matthew's gospel. And so right there, that tells you what Matthew's about. Matthew is about proving to everyone that Jesus is the son of David, not the literal physical son of David, but the ancestor of David and the son of David in the sense of the heir of David's throne. The son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the, the offspring, the heir of the Abrahamic covenants is what Matthew is trying to show. And then what Matthew does is he goes through the genealogy 
but he does it in a forward direction. So he goes back in time and then goes forward towards Jesus. So opposite direction. And he doesn't go all the way to Adam. He's only concerned about Abraham. Because again, it, he, his audience is, is the Jews. And so everybody before Abraham didn't matter. He starts with the first covenant um, of Abraham. And this goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And then look to verse six. And we, we, we know a lot of these characters. We recognize a lot of these folks. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. He makes a point there. And then he goes on. And David was the father of Solomon, by the way, of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And then he goes on. So what do you see there that's different from Luke? No Nathan. No Nathan. Is that what you're going to say, Kaylee? What were you going to say? That's very interesting. I actually hadn't noticed that. She said in the Matthew version, it's, it, it talks about the fathers. What's important is the father and not the son. In Luke, it's all son of, son of, son of. In Matthew, it's father of, father of, father of. That's actually really good, Kaylee. <laughs> I have never noticed that. And I think that's actually super significant. I'm not going to try to figure out why it's significant now on the spot, but I know it's significant. I think it has something to do with the Jewish way of looking at things versus the Greek way, but that's actually a good job. This is why it's good to, to study and talk together, right? Because we come up with different things. And so, um, Tim, you said, so in Luke, we translate the, we follow the genealogy of Jesus through Nathan, David's son. Nathan is the brother of Solomon. So, so David and Bathsheba had, I think, four kids. Nathan is one of the last ones. Solomon was uh, one of the early ones after the baby that they lost. And so what's going on here? We're looking at Jesus's genealogy and we go through two different people, <laughs> both sons of David, but one is the king, Solomon, and the other is Nathan, who we know almost nothing about. And any thoughts as to what's going on here? Why the differences? Andrew has a thought. Maybe Matthew didn't think Nathan was important. That could be. Um, the thing is, which, which one is right? <laughs> they both are. Yeah, they both are. They both. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Go ahead, keep keep talking about that. Well, I I had heard once. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I had heard that Matthew's gospel is from the perspective of Joseph as father and Luke's gospel is from the perspective uh, of Mary as mother. I think that's the, probably the most likely explanation is that Matthew is concerned about Joseph. And if we look at this, Matthew genealogy, I think there's some evidence for that. Again, Matthew is about proving Jesus was the Messiah, which means proving that he was the legal heir of David or at least one of the legal heirs of David. He was possible. The, the only way you could be a Messiah is if you were descended from David, Solomon, the other kings, etc. You don't have to be the prince of Israel, but you have to have that bloodline of which there were, you know, probably hundreds of people in Israel at the time. And so Matthew is interested in proving that that's true. Jesus could be the Messiah because he has the right lineage. And so that's why he says, son of David, son of Abraham. And so that's why Matthew is focusing on this. And he's focusing on the fathers, father of, father of, father of. And then finally you get to father of Jesus. He actually doesn't say father of Jesus though. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so he is at least attempting to give the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, Jesus, well, let me ask in a form of a question, was Jesus descended from Joseph? No. Not really, right? Not really. Um, Joseph adopted Jesus as his legal son. And that counts for, for, for the law in terms of uh, who the heir is and father of son of and all those kind of things. Uh, being legally adopted counts. That was very common in that day. It was common in the Jewish world and it was common in the, in the Roman world too. Uh, Caesar Augustus named Octavian. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar, not the son of Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar adopted Octavian as his heir. And so he called Julius Caesar his father um, from a legal standpoint. And that adoption, by the way, took place when he was like 40. <laughs> um, and that's how people did things back then. And that's why he changed his name to Caesar Augustus. He wanted that Caesar to be part of his name, which he was legally allowed to do. And so I mentioned that because Caesar Augustus is the guy we see soon in Luke chapter two as being the emperor of Rome at the time. And so, yeah, Joseph adopts Jesus. And so he's his legal son. And so this is the, I think this is the genealogy of Joseph. And Matthew is saying, Joseph was legit. He was in line for King David. And because he adopted Jesus, Jesus is in that line as well. If you flip back to Luke, and that was Luke 3, when you look at this genealogy, it is talking about the son of, son of, son of. And we know from the Christmas carol we sang today, the babe, the son of Mary. The babe, the son of Mary. And so I think Luke's genealogy is going through Mary. Uh, another reason I think that is because, like I said, these first three chapters are basically Mary's biography. Mary was clearly the primary source material for Luke in what he wrote in these first three chapters. And so I think he gets Mary's genealogy, but he writes it in such a way that he's trying to make a point here, which is he starts with Jesus, honey, please do not touch the candles. If one of them falls, you will start on fire, okay? We don't want to start on fire unless we're talking metaphorically and referring to the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, and and uh, what's interesting to me is that uh, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, all the way back to Adam. So I think what Luke is attempting here is he's showing Jesus, because Jesus wasn't related to Joseph, but he is related to Mary. He has half of Mary's genome, actually slightly over half. We all have slightly over half of our mother in terms of DNA. And I'm not going to give you a genetics lesson, don't worry. But we all have 50.1, basically, percent of our DNA from our mother. And so Jesus has Mary's DNA. And he, Luke is tracing this all the way back to the beginning, to Adam, the son of God. And this is a subtle hint. Luke, Luke loves to throw subtle theological hints in um, that he often returns to later. And one of those subtle hints is the idea of Jesus being the new Adam, the second Adam. And so just as God created Adam himself, and then nature happened all the way down to Mary, who immaculately conceived Jesus, who was born, um, Jesus is sort of a renewal of, of creation, a, renew, a second Adam, in a sense. And we don't know where the rest of Jesus's DNA comes from. Um, because God does not say. He simply says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, you will become pregnant. And so did God write up a new half of the DNA with a Y chromosome so that Jesus could be a male, which he had to be because of 
uh, the various prophetic implications? Or did he use Adam's DNA? We don't know. I, I tend to think he may have used Adam's DNA, um, but we don't know for sure. We'll find out in heaven. That's on my list of questions to ask God um, when, when I get there. Yeah, I have lots. I have so many questions. It's crazy. Um, I, I like that idea, though, because um, if, if God used the original, you know, pre-sin DNA of Adam, that would allow for Jesus to be immaculately conceived without original sin. The Jews believed that original sin came through the Father. So like the Y chromosome, basically. Out of the 23 chromosomes, the Y chromosome is the one that uh, denotes the child will be male, right? And so the Jews believe, they didn't have an understanding of genetics yet, but they believed that the seed was corrupted, not the egg. And so it was the seed of man, men, males, literally, that was corrupted. And that is what leads to original sin. Uh, I don't know if that's true. That's not actually in the Bible. It's just what the Jews believe and what they taught. Um, that would sort of work here, though, because God uses Mary's DNA, and then he uses whatever male DNA he invented, made up, or maybe Adam's pre-fall, and so that Jesus could be fully human without having original sin. Um, and that's why it had to be an immaculate conception as opposed to a natural one. Um, that, there's a little speculation in there because, again, the Bible doesn't teach that the conclusively that original sin comes through comes through the mail, uh, but that is what they believed at the time. And so that could be part of what, what Luke and Matthew are trying to convey as well through the, because they make both make a pretty big deal about the virgin birth. So, so it's interesting, Nate, that in Matthew, when he goes from Abraham to David, that section is identical in Matthew and Luke, and it's yes. only after David that it diverts. Exactly. Exactly. Because both Mary and, and this would work with our theory, right? That both Mary and Joseph were descended from David, but different sons. And so after that, it's going to have to be very different. Now, you do see some of the same names or similar names, but that's because a lot of people had the same names back then. Like when Gabriel says, name your kid John, there was a lot of Johns. Uh, when Gabriel says, name your kid Jesus, which is Joshua, there were a lot of Joshua's. The, the long-awaited Messiah's name is Josh. So it just seems... It's, it's not just, an uncommon name at all. Yeah, it seems like Luke just put a big, a big emphasis or punctuation mark on the idea that Jesus is twice descended from David. Yeah. Both sides of his family. I think so, too. I mean, that's just amazing. It, it is it is amazing and it really it really does emphasize that and I, and I like I like that Luke goes all the way back to Adam because it's sort of like okay all of humanity everything that's ever happened ends in Jesus it, like it all comes together from the very creation itself comes to this moment this Jesus he is it he's what we've been waiting for he's what we've been looking for he's what God planned from the beginning isn't that cool Kaylee Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and he's and it obviously humanity continues after Jesus, but in a different way. Human humankind is forever changed because of that. And we're going to get back to that concept in a minute. Um, one other thing I wanted to point out about the genealogy, um, and you see this if you look at Matthews and if you look at Luke's. There's a lot of surprising characters here and surprising stories. For example, Judah and Tamar. If you're familiar with that story. Rahab. 
So Tamar, not a Hebrew. Rahab, not a Hebrew. Canaanite. Ruth, not a Hebrew. Moabite. David and Bathsheba. Whoa. So all four of those, and there's other characters here that are sketchy, but those four all have at least a hint of sexual immorality, if not very blatant immorality. And other things as well. Lies, murder. There are people who have a problem with these folks being in the genealogy. I guarantee you the Pharisees would have had a major problem with this. I guarantee you the Jewish establishment of the day would have looked at these genealogies and been like, I don't know about that. Now, some of these were in the line of David. And so what are they going to do, right? So, so let me just ask you, what about that? This is Jesus, the Messiah, right? The idea is that he has to be pure. So why are there all these characters in Jesus' genealogy that are sketchy? Not that alone, but he was the, not the, uh, his only physical um, genealogy is with the, the mother, a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's another thing when the Jews crossed over um, from Egypt, anyone who wanted to, who was Egyptian or anything else for that matter, it didn't matter, who wanted to um, become part of the Jewish tribe and uh, submit to the Jewish rituals and laws were then thereby from that point on considered Jewish. Right. And it could have been Egyptian or anything else. Right. And so at that point, um, Hebrewism yeah. expands from just being people descended from Abraham to being people of the covenant of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And you could join the covenant people, even if you weren't one. And all of these ladies that are mentioned were that, except Bathsheba. She, she was, you know, part of the covenant by birth. But Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, um, who the Bible says was a prostitute. I mean, so, so some of these folks are a bit sketchy. They, so they get adopted in, just as Jesus was adopted in by Joseph, not into the Hebrew tribe, but adopted into the line of David. All these folks were adopted in. But the, the immorality here is, is really interesting because there's a lot of it. And if you go back and read these stories, it's like, yikes, right? Um, what do you think that's about? Because there are some people who don't like that. I, I've, I've heard evangelicals teach about how God doesn't use people who've done things that are bad and you have to keep, <laughs> you have to keep yourself, you have to keep yourself right and pure if you want God to use you. And I one time brought up the genealogy of Jesus and gave a one minute story on each of these characters. And I'm like, so what do you do with that? This is Jesus Christ, the Holy one of Israel. And there's some unholy stuff in his family line. So what, what do you think? It, it sounds like the line from Old Holy Night says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Yeah. That's a whole genealogy to one degree or another till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I like that. That's, that's one of my favorite actually Christmas carols anyway, but the, the words in there are so powerful, you know? Um, I agree. I think, I think right away when Jesus comes on the scene, you don't, you don't have to know anything about him yet. But if you know the character of God and look at his genealogy, you see a redeemer. You see that God is a redeemer. God is a forgiver. 
God is one who takes whatever past you have and redeems it. Because some of Jesus's past is kind of ugly with some of these folks. You've got murderers and rapists in here, right? Uh, that's not great, especially for Hebrews for whom that was so important. And but, tax collectors. And tax collectors, even worse. Yeah, and Saul of Tarsus. Yeah. 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 And so I, I, I just, I love that right away you see who, you sort of see hints of who Jesus is going to be, who he is called to be. He is called to be a redeemer, the redeemer for the whole world. Kaylee. Um, did these people, like, Jesus' ancestors know they were the ancestors of Jesus? That is a great question. Did Jesus' ancestors know that they were going to be the ancestors of the Messiah? Um, I believe David did because there were so many prophecies about God bringing um, the Messiah through the line of David. So I think David had a hint of it. I think Solomon may have had a hint of it, but most of them did not. Abraham knew, they, they knew that they were all covenant people because God made the, fir the first covenant with Abraham. So they knew that the Messiah was coming, but a lot of those folks wouldn't, especially the later ones, wouldn't have known that the Messiah was coming through them. Like my great grandkid is the Messiah, what? Man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the reasons that genealogy was so carefully kept mm -hmm. and why the Jews um, made sure that they, if they wanted to be what they considered in the line of the covenant to marry Jewish women. Right. Because that doubled your chances. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally. Um, but again, given that that was true, it's so interesting that there are so many non-genetically Hebrew people, you know, in this. Now, Ruth, as a Moabitess, was a child of, of Abraham, but not part of the, the covenant people. Um, anyway, I think it's very interesting. I love that it shows that God is a redeemer. And even in the genealogy of the Holy One, there's messed up stuff. And that, that gives me hope for everybody, that your past, once, once you join the new covenant, the, all the past stuff, your ancestors, that kind of stuff, just, it's not a big deal. It's not a, it's not a deal breaker. You know, you don't have to be born a princess, a literal physical prince or princess um, for God to be able to use you. You can be born to a bald guy who preaches from his living room. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that totally works. Gary. <laughs> okay. Um, any other thoughts on, on the genealogy or, the, or that stuff? All right. Let's flip back to Luke 1 and carry on with the walkthrough. How are we doing here? All right. I think we'll get through. We'll try to get through Zach and Beth. So I'm not going to read this. We're just going to kind of walk through it together. For sake of time, you're all pretty familiar with the story. So in the days of Herod, and Luke doesn't need to mention Herod, that's Herod the Great, um, king of Judea. But again, in the days of, Luke, Luke is writing a history, remember? And so he wants to make it real clear when these events are taking place. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zach of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife 
from the daughters of Aaron. Notice that again, Luke has done his homework. He understands the genealogy of Beth goes through the daughters of Aaron. So they're both Levites um, specifically, but also that she was literally descended from Aaron, the first high priest. And her name was Beth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they kept the law, the, the Hebrew law. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. So she could not have children. They tried uh, probably a lot and they could not have children. So she was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, right away, that probably makes you think of something. Elizabeth was, they were righteous, but she was barren and they were both advanced in years. What does that make you think of? Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, exactly. And so, again, this is one of those awesome subtle hints from Luke as he tells you this story, as he's like, he wants you to be thinking Abraham and Sarah when you read this. And that's not by accident. It's because the covenant, the old covenant, the original covenant started with Abraham and now it's ending. The first covenant started and now the first covenant is coming to a close because Jesus is bringing about a new covenant, a better covenant. And so Luke is kind of giving us these subtle hints that Abraham and Sarah is where it started and now he's making kind of a new Abraham and Sarah. And so it's a bookend and, and, and the Bible loves doing these kind of bookends. You got the beginning of the covenant and you have the end. And a lot of people at the time considered John the Baptist basically the, the full embodiment of the old covenant in a lot of ways, but also the end of it. And from then on, you know, through Jesus Christ and everything he did for us as the church, we enter into a new covenant, which is different, better. Kaylee. I'm sorry. Uh, Luke chapter one. I started with verse five and then we just read verse seven. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. So they're barren and they're too old to have kids, even if she wasn't barren. And by the way, back then they blamed barrenness on the woman exclusively. Um, it could have been Zach that was the, the, the problem. Uh, they didn't really differentiate that unless they could prove that he wasn't the problem because he had had other kids by other people, but it doesn't say that. So, um, And that was just part of the kind of sexism of the day. Uh, so Zach and Beth, Good, righteous people, no kids, which at that time was, barrenness was still seen as sort of a curse from God. Like you did something bad and you didn't deserve kids. That's kind of how people thought of it. Even though the Bible doesn't teach that, that's how people in society thought of it. And so women who didn't have any children were really looked down on. They were made fun of. It wasn't fun to be Elizabeth. Yes, frowny face. Kaylee. Uh, It says Zachariah. Zachariah and Elizabeth are their names. I'm calling them Zach and Beth to try to make them seem more family, you know, more relatable. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Continuing verse eight. Now, while he, this is Zach, was serving as priest before God, his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. Um, so you got called into service. Think, think National Guard or something like that, right? He was part of the big Levite contingent and his cohort, his group was called in to serve in Jerusalem at the temple for a certain period of time. It was like a couple of weeks, I think. Um, but it didn't happen all that often. You could be a Levite and you could be a priest, but like that wasn't your full-time job for most people. You didn't get a check from the temple 
when he was back home. Like he did probably did something else. We don't know. Um, but he was part of the priestly cohort. His group is in and he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense chosen by lot. Basically they rolled dice. Yeah. They rolled dice to decide what the will of God was. Yeah. And that, that was a fairly common thing in, in those kind of religions. Some religions still do that. They throw dice to decide uh, what the will of the divine is. And we, yeah, it's like a chance cube. They, they usually used, I don't think they used bones in, he, in the Hebrew religion. They used sticks and that sort of thing. But it's basically dice. They're rolling dice. And we see that in Acts chapter one, when they're like, we need a 12th apostle because the number 12 is important because 12 tithes of Israel and uh, Judas, you know, and so we need to replace Judas. And so they cast lots. They rolled dice. You're the one, two, three, four, five, six. All right, ready? Boom. Four. Matthias, congratulations. You're the new number 12. That is the last time we see them cast lots in the Bible. Why? Because they didn't need to do it anymore. Why? Because Jesus was the new covenant. Jesus was the new covenant. Why specifically? So Acts chapter one, they rolled the dice. From Acts chapter two following, they don't need to. What happened in there? Do you remember? Ruth, Ruth said it. The Holy Spirit came, Pentecost, the gift of the Father. Now that we have the Holy Spirit within us, we can ask God what he wants to do, and he will tell us. We don't need to cast lots anymore. Occumancy wasn't done after they replaced um, Judas with Matthias because it didn't need to be. You don't have to roll the dice to determine God's will. You can ask him. He'll tell you. Kaylee. This is another thing about uh, rolling dice in school, we just read chat, uh, Esther. Esther, yeah. And Haman and some Greek people rolled dice to decide what day to kill um, the Jews. That's right. Um, Xerxes and Haman rolled the dice to decide what day to kill the Jews in the, in the book of Ruth. So that was done by a lot of groups. Hebrews did it, but a lot of other groups back then did it as well. Um, but that ends with the new covenant. It ends after Acts chapter one, because now we have the Holy Spirit. We don't need to cast, cast lots anymore. We don't need to cast dice. We just listen to God. Okay. But they did at the time and Zach's lot was chosen. And so the dice roll hit Zach. And for many priests, this never happened in their life that you get to go into the holy place and burn incense in the, in the holy place in the temple. So this, this is a big deal, big deal. He's probably never done this before in his life. He probably will never do it again, just based on the numbers. Now, again, because they cast lots, you, you could end up doing it a few times in your life and you could end up never getting to do it. But the lot fell on him this time and he gets to do it. So this is a big deal. This is for, for Zach, this is the culmination of his career. This is the big moment. This is the big dance. This is the show. He gets to go into the holy place and burn the incense, okay? So he should be stoked. He should be super excited. He should be super happy. It's a great honor for him and his family. Did you hear that Zach got to burn the incense? I know, we're so proud. So this is a big deal. And he goes in and it says the whole multitude, uh, verse 10, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense when he's going to do his thing, right? For about an hour. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So he's in the holy place. He's doing his thing with the incense, burning it on the table. They have like a censer. They move around. And boom, angel next to the golden altar. Sweet. That should be your rea reaction. Cool. That should be your reaction too. Not his reaction. 
Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. He was freaked out, freaked out. This is a very common reaction to seeing angels in the Bible. Almost everybody sees an angel is freaked out. Why are they freaked out when they see an angel? Because they're really scary, maybe. Maybe they're really big. Maybe they're really fearsome looking. Or maybe it's because angels spend time in the presence of God. And so the, they're holy. That holiness, when you know that you're not holy, or you may, you may or may not know that you're unholy, but when you're in the presence of holiness, you know for sure that you're not holy. And so it could be that that's what the people are reacting against when they see angels. That could be a combination of both. Kaylee is furiously raising her hand. <laughs> what, what do you want to ask or say? Mm -hmm. and you felt like you were like worthless and like you weren't like, like oh interesting and like as high as them you felt ashamed yeah and like so, you, may, so maybe he's feeling awe just being in the presence of someone that he knows he's an angel he feels kind of insignificant in, in this moment in his life where he's very significant because he gets to burn the incense here shows up an angel an archangel as it happens and maybe then he feels less significant and then he's like Yeah, that could be too. That could be too. So it's interesting. We don't know exactly why he, he was troubled, it says, troubled and afraid. And so the angel speaks to him, verse 13, and he says, do not be afraid, which is almost always the first thing angels say, right? Because everybody's afraid. Because dude, angel, do not be afraid, Zach, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So that's the first thing he says. Your prayer has been heard. Is that good news or bad news? Good news. That's good news. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer specifically? What are you talking about? Gabe, it ends up being Gabriel. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think Zachariah was still currently praying for Elizabeth to get pregnant? Probably not. I had a, I had a thought. Right. Yeah. Back to the angel thing, the verse popped in mind from Psalm 8. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. So like that was before being born again. Maybe there's like, you automatically know your rank is below an angel when you're in, I think of an angel. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's something to that. I think, I, I think it's kind of all of the above. But, but, when, but when we see it in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and this this is still old covenant because, you know, Jesus hasn't died yet. Um, almost exclusively, every time an angel shows up, people freak out. So there, there are reasons for that. Uh, multiple reasons, probably. And this time he shows up and he says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to get pregnant and she's going to bear you a son. So is Zach still praying? He clearly was at some point praying that they could have a child, Right. But it makes a point saying they're old. They're past childbearing age. Do you think he's still praying for that? Probably not. I agree. We know the story. We know what happens next, right? We've read ahead. Um, based on Zach's attitude, I don't think he was praying for this anymore. And I think this is really interesting. So he probably started praying for this as soon as they got married, you know, which we don't know how old they were, but it was 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, maybe when they got married and he prayed and he prayed for years and he prayed for decades and his prayer didn't get answered. And he probably stopped praying 
Yeah, he gave up. I agree, because based on his attitude, you see that I think that's true. And yet the angel shows up and says, hey, great news. Your prayer has been heard. What? My prayer from like 30 years ago? What's up with that? Isn't this interesting? Don't give up on your prayers. Don't give up on the things that God calls you to do, asks you to do, asks you to pray about or press into. God may have answered some of our prayers from decades ago. We didn't see the answer yet at the time. And so we may have assumed God didn't want to answer our prayers or something like that. But it could be God did answer our prayers. But time works differently for God than it does for us. I, I agree with modern science that time is an illusion. It's how we perceive life. But it, to God, it, it, he doesn't perceive it that way. So he may have answered that prayer 30 years ago, 40 years ago that Zachariah made. He, Zachariah didn't see the answer to that prayer until now. But to God, it, it's, it's all now, right? And so this is, this is just really, really curious to me. Like how many of the prayers that we have prayed in the past did God say yes to? We just won't see them yet. Yes, that prodigal child will come home. Prayer answered. Okay, but he's not home yet. I know, but he will be. It's done. It's a done deal already. We just don't see it yet in our perception of how life works. But God has already answered that prayer. That Ruth. Well, that reminds me, I think we talked about this before, but that missionary Otto Koenig, who you said you like, knew somehow or... Anyway, Otto Koenig and his wife are on a cassette tape that I listened to decades ago. <clears throat> I think I listened to it over and over. But he told a story of how God taught them to pray this prayer of surrender, which goes like, God, you wait, you wait to answer our prayers until it brings you the most glory. I like that. I like that. And that very accurately describes, I think, what hap what's happening right here in Luke 1. The angel said, your prayers have been heard. And I don't think he's prayed those prayers for years, maybe decades. I'm sure he long since gave up. And yet, God already answered that prayer. The fulfillment just wasn't yet. He had to hold on to it until God could be brought the most glory, which in this case was John the Baptist to prepare a way for Jesus. And how much glory did that bring? A ton, right? And a miracle to boot. And a, multiple miracles, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, one, one more thing, and then we're gonna we're gonna end for the week. We're gonna end on a high note. Good news from the angel. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it starts out bad next week, but uh, Kaylee. Um, I, I think like most people, if they get like their prayer answered a long time after they like pray it or like give up or whatever. I think like they wouldn't be as grateful. They they might not be grateful when I, when if it's taken a long time to get your prayer answered she's saying they might not be as grateful um because they've spent time you know being disappointed i think that's true and i think that's exactly what we see here in zachariah's response because you would expect zach to be really stoked because he gets probably like the greatest message ever your prayer is answered and your kid's going to be amazing and he's going to do amazing things and holy cow it's going to be awesome and his response, <laughs> and his response is like, how do I know that's going to happen? I don't believe you. 
what? How is that his answer? It's because it took so long. I don't and think holy cow is in there. Holy cow, it's in one of the translations. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not always, you know, translated word for word as holy cow, but um, I think because there was that major gap between the prayer and the answer to the prayer, if you don't, we'll get, we'll get into this next week, but you have to do something and make choices in your life for that not to turn into bitterness. Disappointment naturally turns into bitterness and ungratefulness and maybe even anger if you don't intercede and intervene in that disappointment. Um, and Zach didn't and his heart grew hard and cold, which was sad. And Gabriel has to uh, discipline him. It's time out time for Zach. We'll get to that next week because um, I don't want us to, to go too over. Uh, and any, any last thoughts? That's so good. There are a lot of parallels in not only Abraham and Sarah. Of course, they they named they named um, Isaac laughter because Sarah laughed when. Yeah. <laughs> but also, just the whole people of Israel. Um, they got to the promised land, sent in the spies, and then they didn't listen. It's yep. they didn't see what God was doing. Yeah, you know, and they ended up, you know, they ended up, <laughs> and Zechariah was silent for a couple of months till his baby was born. <clears throat> the people of Israel had to go forty years. Forty year timeout. Yeah, forty year timeout. And they still didn't get in. Yeah. After forty they, years, they still hadn't learned. They, they perished, except for a couple. Yeah, the, yeah. It's a sobering, sobering thought. Sobering thought. And they they could have they could have done that. They, they could have intervened in their own hearts, you know, but they didn't choose to. And Zachariah could have done that too. He could have intervened and kept that disappointment from turning in, into bitterness. And we'll, we'll talk more about that next year or next, next week. Cause I think that's a next year is a couple more weeks. God, couple did, more weeks. It, God did it anyway. Like, God did it anyway. That's what's so interesting, right? Yeah. God knew that Zach had become bitter such that he sees an angel and says, whatever, how am I supposed to believe you? Because he's an angel. Like he's pretty far gone in his heart. He's, he's, his heart is turned to stone, I think, really. And God does it anyway. Again, it shows the incredible character of God and how God is so much better than we expect him to be. We don't expect God to bring the Messiah out of a genealogy that's so full of nonsense and sin. We don't expect God to give a promised child, Elijah coming back again, to a man who was bitter and stone-like in his heart. But God does it anyway. God is always so much better than we expect him to be. It's like he was a prodigal. Like that gives me yeah. to my prodigals. It's, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. And that's, that's who he is. And, that, and he loves doing it. He loves doing it. We tend to write people off. We tend to write God off sometimes. And God just never does. It's, it's pretty amazing. All right. I, I want to end here with prayer because we're a little over time. Okay. God, I thank you that you don't give up on your people. Thank you that this, this story is the beginning of a story of many centuries 
of not giving up on your people and not giving up on us. And that Jesus was the culmination of all those centuries. We thank you that your nature is such that you always keep searching for us and you always keep pursuing us. And Lord, I pray that for each of us who's listening to this, whether we're, we're live now or watching it later, you would help us to do what Zach should have done when we're disappointed, when we don't hear the answers to the prayers right now, when we want them right now, help us to give that up, to humble ourselves and to put ourselves in your hands and to surrender to you, knowing that you can be trusted and that sometimes unexpectedly out of the blue, you'll answer those prayers for us. Pray that you'd help us to maintain soft hearts before you. And we pray that during this season, you would allow us to be expecting Christ to come to us in a new way and expecting the Messiah to, to fill us, to be God with us, Emmanuel, in a new way this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, hey could I say something? You, you, I'll allow it. Uh, Phil is having a, a really bad morning. Hmm. Uh, it it appears that there's been a turn, a change, a downward a downward spiral, and so uh, Margaret is eating lunch, but he didn't want to get up for lunch. He didn't even say anything. I mean, he just rolled over, and I tried to encourage him. Well, he will jump for that. He jumps up for lunch, but he's not jumping up, and he almost fell when I tried to take him to the bathroom. So I didn't take him. I just brought him back uh, in. So. Uh, Sorry, I've been in and out, but uh, got, got most of it. Thank you, Nate. It's very exciting to hear this message again. So as you think of Phil and Margaret, pray for both of them because Margaret is looking for him for lunch and he's, she's wondering where he is and he won't be there for lunch probably. So uh, thank you for praying for them. That's my request, amen. Amen. Well, Lord, we do pray for Phil and Margaret. We pray for health. We pray for comfort. And we don't know when their time is to be called home, but we know where they're going and they know where they're going and they're excited to get there. And so, Lord, we put them in your hands and we ask you to, to work your will and your timing. And when it's time for them to come home, uh, we will all celebrate as you do and they do. And until then, I ask that in so much as it's possible that you would take away their suffering and their pain and... If this isn't his time to go, we pray that you'd heal him up quickly yeah. in Jesus' yeah. name. Amen. Amen. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he smile upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.